Talk Radio. everyone and welcome to the 478th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. I'm your host Daniel Feuerstein. I'll give you an American perspective, our clubs, leagues, players, national team and other fabulous moments. You get your daily reading from me over at onceametro.com and the rest of the SB Nation family of soccer websites. The chat room is open. Come on in. Discuss amongst yourselves if you like. If you have a question for me, I'll try to answer to the best of my abilities. You know, I want to say thank you to Mr. Josh Taylor. Josh Taylor, a student at Full Sail University. He's doing the Dan Patrick School of Broadcasting um, over in um, Florida, Full Sail University, excuse me, uh, down in Florida. And um, he interviewed me. For uh, you know, for his uh, school, uh, the class. <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. The classes he's taking, uh, based in the Orlando, Central Florida area. So uh, I just want to give out to Josh a shout out to Josh Taylor to say once again thank you for the interview. You can watch the interview uh, on YouTube. Um, you can also go to his Twitter page, JT Saka A. 88. Let me just make sure that is the uh, correct place to go for Twitter. Just one minute. Josh Taylor, J, capital letters JTS, lowercase O C K A 88. That's his Twitter account. Um, head on over to his page in Twitter. And all I can say is. All I can say is that uh, he did a great job. I, you know, I try to answer it, all his questions uh, to the best of my ability to be as honest as possible. And once again, you know, if you want, if you want an honest opinion about the game in this country, if you want an honest uh, decisions, honest commentary, you you've come to the right place. Because once again, it's called common sense, even though. Out in the world right now, outside of your computers, outside your homes, your apartments, your cars, even outside of your, uh, shall we say, web-enabled devices and computers and laptops, you know, everything's going crazy in the world today. And I'm hoping that I can bring you at least enough of of a distraction to talk about the game in this country. And so far, what we have seen has been some pretty good soccer, some pretty good football to see what's going to happen. And all I can say is is that we are seeing now expansion teams starting to rack up some wins and, of course, an expansion team racking up the losses. And we're talking about, of course, Nashville SC and Inter-Miami. And even though Nashville has lost their first two matches of the regular season, they came back 
not allowed to be in the tournament because of the coronavirus uh, situation that plagued their team as well as FC Dallas. They were both kicked out. But now you're seeing Nashville really coming together. You're seeing Gary Smith and his tactics now flourishing in Nashville after not just the first two losses of the season, but that long break, not playing in the MLS Cup in his back tournament. Victory, first victory of the club's history at FC Dallas, playing there again at FC Dallas. They got a scoreless draw. Now the 1-0 victory over Inter-Miami. Five points in three matches for Nashville SC. It has been an amazing uh, turnaround for Nashville coming forward. Inter-Miami, they have right ideas. It's just the execution is failing them at this point in time. They did beat Orlando to gain revenge from the loss at the MLS's back tournament at the Walt Disney World Resort Complex in that first matchup. But, you know, for Inter-Miami, and I understand Inter-Miami fans, are you know, they want to see a victory then you know more than just one victory they want to see plenty of victories and you know what i think some people have to understand that when you come into mls you're not going to be like seattle you're not going to be like my uh you're not going to be like atlanta you're not going to be like some of these clubs that have been you know off to a roaring start you're going to be sputtering you'll be sputtering like what happened with minnesota united one season does not mean it's all over but the shouting. This is a situation where if you're Inter-Miami supporters right now, you just have to take, uh, take it with a grain of salt. You're going to have to roll with the punches. You have to make sure that you are level-headed. This is the start of a brand-new team. You're back in MLS no, this is not the Miami Fusion. Rome wasn't built in a day. Some of these teams were lucky enough that Rome was built in a day. But still, you have to remain calm. You have to remain careful. Don't blow a gasket because you've lost six of your first seven matches. Okay? This was bound to happen. And the same thing for Nashville. You're coming to MLS... It got off to a bad start. The pandemic hit. You couldn't play in the tournament at Disney because of the pandemic that affected you and affected FC Dallas. But you got back home. You quarantined yourselves. You got yourselves prepared a lot better. You come into these first three matches, returning into action. You are now two wins, a draw, and two losses if you're Nashville SC. If you're into Miami, it's a win and six losses. It's not good. But, once again, this is early in your tenure. Don't be like a spoiled brat and assume you're going to go and dominate everything. There needs to be more chemistry to develop. And once that happens, everything will be just fine. You just got to calm down and allow it to happen gradually and naturally. You're not going to come off and go out running and you're going to dominate. You know, 
I'm not saying anything negative about the head coach in Miami. You know, I mean, you know, he probably, whether it was him after Victor Vucetic at Monterey, or it was another manager after Vucetic in Monterey, and then him, you know, you know, getting a win and getting consistent wins it's going to take a while when you take over a football club when you take over and you got to go out there and perform at the highest level in american soccer you have to be aware of what you're doing. You have to be aware of the situation. You have to be aware of what's going on. And at the same time, you must be very, very calm. You cannot go and lose your heads. You cannot lose your heads. Because I'm telling you right now, it makes no sense. It makes, excuse me, it makes no sense to lose your heads and assume that the sky is falling. Can't do that. Can't. Cannot do that. You got to give Diego Alonso a chance, everyone. Diego Alonso deserves a chance to have his visions come through. I think he knows what has to be done. I think he understands what he needs to do. He just has to worry about managing the tactics and making sure that the players that he has are the right ones to go out there. I'm I'm sure he. I mean, for goodness sakes, he has Pizarro after all. He's got Juan Agadella. He's got, um, you know, a bunch of darn good players. I mean, Julian Carranza is a pretty good player. He's got AJ De La Garza on this team. I mean, Leandro Gonzalez Perez is on this team. You got, you know, Sean Nealis' brother Dylan on this team. You know, he's a rookie. You got Lee Wynn on this team. You know, you just, Alvis Powell is on this team. You just, and of course, the goalkeeper is Luis Robles, you know, who's been in MLS, you know, for as many years as he's been in this league, you know, and he's doing great. Ben Sweat, Breck Shea, Will Trapp, Roman Torres, Victor Yuloa. So, you know, once again, Inter Miami fans, you got to calm down. You got to take it easy and don't worry. The winds will be coming a lot quicker than normal. Now, let me just say this to the Nashville fans. I have to say this. It was a poor start to the season. The pandemic came. And even though there was a break between the pandemic uh, coming to stopping the season and then the restarting of the season, 
Gary Smith turned it around. Why did he turn it around? Because he's been in MLS before as head coach of the Colorado Rapids. He brought the Rapids their first ever and only MLS championship in the MLS Cup. He knows how to play in this league. He knows what to do and how to do it. But just because you're on a three-match unbeaten streak does not mean that you're going to dominate. Yes, you've got some pretty good players. Anibal Godoy, what a rip he had against Inter-Miami and beat Robles cleanly to the upper near 90. You've got Dax McCarty, who's got plenty of experience. Alex Muriel coming over from the Red Bulls. You've got Walker Zimmerman, who's pretty good in the air and heading things down. Once again, you just have to take things with a grain of salt if you're an expansion team. Do not lose your heads. Just take it easy. Enjoy the ride. Just be happy you have an MLS club to call home, to call your own. And then until everything gets much better, then you can start worrying about fighting for titles, being in a big playoff run, being in a big open cup run, challenging, but of course, you know, qualifying for the CONCACAF Champions League and trying to get the league's first ever CCL championship. At the same time, if you might battle in the League's Cup against, you know, some of these clubs from Mexico, from Liga MX, you know, that will be something to look for, to look at. And until we do, until it happens right now, just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. That's all you have to do. Sit back and relax and enjoy the ride. You'll get there. I promise you, you will get there. But it's only been year one. You're not the Chicago Fire that came out you know, like gangbusters back in 1998 and beat DC United for the championship of MLS. You're not the Chicago Fire who won the double in 1998, the second club to win the double in 1998 for MLS Cup and U.S. Open Cup. We have no Open Cup this year to worry about, so that's all you can say and that's all you can do. It will happen, everybody. You'll get there. But for now, it's got to take it easy, relax, and just enjoy that you have a club to call your own. That's all I can say. That's all I can tell you. And we just got to remain strong and vigilant and just keep going until, you know, they get a lot better and everything is just fine. Okay? Just got to take it easy. Got to take it easy. Don't worry about it. It will all come naturally. And just have fun. Just enjoy yourself. That's all I can say. I got a great show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Later on, around 8.30 Eastern Time, I'm going to have on Tom McCabe and Derek Gonsalves. 
uh, talking about Fall River Marksman, uh, the club back in the days of the uh, ASL and uh, when soccer uh, was big in Falls River, still is. But uh, they'll be joining us then soon. We'll review the Red Bull matches in the Red Bull segment. But first things first, uh, I have on right now Carter Krishnar from World Soccer Talk as we're going to discuss the situation that has happened again um, over this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Obviously, it's another interaction with the police and an and a African-American who got shot seven times. And it's basically everyone, including MLS, the players decided not to play and out of protest because of what's been going on, and um, it's just not pretty. Once again, from World Soccer Talk, Carter Krishnar joins me. Kardik, uh, good evening. I hope you and your family are still remaining safe and vigilant through this whole pandemic, but um, this is a really, you know, I try not to talk about politics and, and, you know, integrate it with sports, but I think we just have to say that no matter what, something's going to happen, and it happened on Wednesday night. The players... Uh, that play in MLS as well as the league decided to protest and postpone a slew of matches on Wednesday, August the 26th. Um, what What is your stance on this? Yeah, so I think that it was pretty prudent what the, uh, the league did because um, the players were not in, in any condition to play and there had been a kind of a, a wildfire spreading, right? The, um, the Milwaukee Bucks said they weren't going to play their game five against the Magic, Orlando Magic, and then that spread to uh, the Milwaukee Brewers. Now the uh, the Braves had a doubleheader, right? So they hit they, their, their game one had already started, so they played their doubleheader. And then I think there was some indecision. I'm not quite sure what happened in Orlando, um, but they decided to play that game, Orlando and Nashville. And Orlando City's just been playing some phenomenal football of late, so uh, they got the 3-1 win. But um, you know, here in Fort Lauderdale, I know um, Atlanta United did not want to play the game. And I'm not sure where Inter was. Uh, the club called Inter uh, that, that Atlanta was playing here. I, I'm not sure what where, where their captain or their, their players were, but my understanding is Atlanta did not want to play. And Atlanta... You have to remember, Atlanta United has done this just phenomenal job of cultivating a different kind of fan base than most MLS clubs. So they have a lot of African-American fans. And they've got a lot – they cultivated a lot of people in urban Atlanta. Uh, They've done it really well in terms of – and that's part of the reason why uh, they dropped like as many people as most of the MLS teams. I mean, I I don't want to make this section where I'm – picking on the, the, the rest of MLS for not broadening their fan base. But Atlanta United has a very broad fan base. They've, they've gotten in touch with the African-American culture in the city. So I think those players felt a responsibility. Hey, we can't play with this going on. And um, fortunately for them, um, because I don't think they would have played, right? And, and, and it would have been terrible if they ended up forfeiting the game or something like that would have happened. Fortunately for them, I think cooler, uh, smarter heads prevailed. They didn't play that match, and then uh, MLS quickly called it a night uh, after that. But I think, you know, more interesting is what happened the next day with Delroy Hansen, and um, we can talk about that because that was that was fascinating, and that just poured gasoline on the fire. Uh, I gotta say that kind of threw me for a tizzy because you know, 
you know, how many times people were – well, when Mike Petke was the head coach, he said something, I guess, uh, wasn't too good towards uh, uh, the referees, of course, being from a Spanish-speaking country in Central America. But still, though, the poor, or Mexico, the point is, though, is that, you know, Deloy Hansen apparently has been uh, notorious with this, and, and, and he let one rip, and uh, now he's being forced not just to sell his MLS and USL clubs, but also the NWSL clubs, and, y- you know – you know, it, it reminds me of Donald Sterling, who owned the Los Angeles Clippers, and not knowing that he was being recorded by his younger girlfriend, you know, who he's been, you know, living with in his uh, house for I don't know how long, and then he was forced to sell the Clippers. Yeah, I don't want to sound insensitive on this, because I'm not, I'm definitely not. But um, Donald Sterling was one of the worst owners in professional sports in the United States. He's probably worse than most of the owners in Europe. You know, he would have, he would have been like, uh, if you follow English football, he would have been like the Blackpool owners, the Oysters. You know, the, 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 the just, he was just that bad. So it's like when it happened with Donald Sterling, he knew he was having this affair with this younger lady. It was like, okay, it's Donald Sterling. Let's uh, and, and, and everything fell in place. With Hampton, it's a little difficult, more difficult because. RSL has been – now, granted, a lot of the building of RSL was done under Dave Checkets, right? But um, RSL has been a model kind of um, – a, a model uh, uh, set up in terms of uh, what they've done with their USL club and what they've done with all their youth academies. And they've had youth academies in different parts of the country. Then you talk about him stepping in when FC Kansas City, who, whose owner, by the way, had a similar kind of scandal, referring to LGBTQ people, not – um, this uh, not 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 African American, but had a um, had a scandal. He stepped in and saved that team and relocated them to Utah. Um, built a pretty good team, right? Brought Laura Harvey in, did did, did things really well um, in 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 year one there. So that was um, that that I, that's why I, it was so stunning because I thought he was probably actually a pretty progressive owner. But once he opened his mouth and said what he did. Uh, you had Josie take the Twitter, and then I think even more damning was the interview that Chris Wondolowski gave um, within hours of, of, of Delo Hansen's uh, radio interview on a radio station he owns, by the way. Um, and Wondolowski's like, I wouldn't play for him, and basically implied no player would play for this guy. I wouldn't want to play for that owner type of thing. Now, obviously, Wando is retiring this year, so he would never be in the scenario to play for him, right? But I think he was expressing a sentiment that, hey, for us players, this isn't cool. We we don't want an owner like this around. So once Wando spoke um, and Josie tweeted, then things just began to fall. You know, the dominoes began to fall. And uh, then Bob Bradley made a comment, right? He made made it very clear that uh, that sort of person, uh, Coach Bradley made it kind of clear he doesn't want to be in the league with someone like this. So I think MLS at that point that point has to ask, uh, NWSL similarly has to ask. I'm, again, a little struck that USL didn't do anything or say anything. Um, and by the way, on Wednesday, we're talking about MLS games being postponed. USL games went right on, right on ahead. Um, although there have been some kind of cool things that have happened in USL also. I mean, I think uh, uh, the, the Rowdies mm-hmm. uh, the, the other day with their game, that, that was that was really neat what they did. Um, but... Um, yeah, I think we're at a moment in sports where athletes are feeling empowered 
in a way that they haven't before. You know, we know there have been demonstrations in the past. There have been athletes who have taken strong stands on issues and influence things. But I don't think quite, I mean, I, I remember, I mean, and, 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 and you're, uh, you're a Knicks fan, right? Are you? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm a Knicks fan. Yeah, well, I remember. I mean, I, I I worked on Bill Bradley's presidential campaign, so I um I know that that was what it was very difficult. You know, for guys like Willis Reed who were buddies with him, it wasn't difficult, right? Doctor J loved Bill yep. Bradley. You know, he came out publicly, but for some of the other basketball players, it was a tough thing for them to come out. Now, Michael Jordan ended up cutting commercial for us, which was quite good. I I, I they didn't really talk about that in the uh, in the uh, Thirty for thirty. They wanted to imply mm-hmm. Michael Jordan, a Republican, but I mean, I, he, he did cut a really good ad for Bill Bradley. But um, I remember just the difficulty in that campaign of getting athletes yep. to step out because it just was a past day thing. That was twenty years ago, um, and some of them did, like you know, uh, Clyde, uh, Clyde Frazier, Willis Reed, the guys who played with with Bradley did, and Dr. J did. But for others, it was like, hey, I don't want to get involved in politics. Half my fans, you know, if I support Bill Bradley, all the people who are Republicans won't like me. And it was a pretty normal reaction. I can't blame any of them for it. So it's interesting to see 20 years later, that's not the way a lot of these people are thinking. I think a lot of them are thinking now, hey, we are in power. Um, We want to use our power to influence the world. And, and uh, you know, Jody has been pretty outspoken on this stuff in the past, so I'm not surprised by that. Um, what I was surprised about, no. I think, was the reaction from MLS fans. I think most fans were like, don't play. That's what's really surprising. So I thought, okay, there were going to be a lot of fans. It would be 50-50. Um, it wasn't. It was like, okay, I'd say like 20% of the fans were angry. But it was like 80-20. I mean, I think... Most of the fans have the players back with this. I don't know if it's the same in the other sports, but in our sport, that's what it was. Yeah, I agree with you there. I, I mean, th- this situation um, has really, you know, put a lot of spotlights on anything and everything. Players standing up uh, and being accountable because all we can say is is that. You know, no one wants to play with an owner who has feelings like that. Or, okay, if you, if they said it by mistake, you know, maybe we can forgive them. But the truth is, is that, you know, these days you you go against the grain. It's over with. You got to sell. You got to get rid of everything. You got to step down, regardless of what it is you do or or what you own. I mean, you know, I feel like that. There's a lot of change in the world right now. There's a lot of change going on right now in our country. And we're seeing what's been going on out our windows, especially on our televisions. There's a lot of craziness going on. And all I can say is is that are we going to find a common sense solution to all this? Are we still going to go completely nuts? Yeah, that's a really good question because I think the thing that really shocked me was the reaction, well, I shouldn't say it shocked me because I should have been prepared for it. So the, the, the idea of college football this year and how that became very political uh, as to whether it should be played or not, I mean, I thought it was kind of uh, insane to play it because um, it's different than professional sports. And this is what the Big Ten and Pac-12 mm-hmm. were thinking. 
is that, well, they have to go back to a college campus. They're in a bubble, essentially, already, so they may be bringing COVID right back. They're exposed to other, other things because of the game. They might be bringing COVID right back into what is effectively a bubble or a college campus. So I think it's very different than MLS or NFL or NBA or, or the NHL point, right? So um, yep. where are we going to find some common ground? This is, this is now becoming um, – look, I, 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 I think one of the things I've seen – with the fan bases, and, and I would say starting with the Women's World Cup last year, which became very political, Megan Rapinoe and others, I think we're seeing a divergence of people who tend to be more liberal people uh, watching soccer and watching basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, I, and I think the basketball-football thing has always been there. By the way, when I, when I used to cover college sports, I used to talk about it all the time, that I, that I found more Democrats like college basketball and more Republicans like college football. So at least at the college level, it's always been there. Um, and then I think Major League Baseball kind of has both, um, you know, or kind of centrist people. And then you're seeing uh, more conservative people gravitate to football and, and whatever else, golf. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's very weird to me. Are we going to segregate ourselves by sport? Are we going to say, hey, I'm a Democrat, so I'm not watching the NBA, but I'm not watching the NFL. Hey, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Republican, so I'm watching uh, the, the NHL, but not watching MLS. I mean, I, I don't think that's healthy, but that might be – it seems like that's where we're headed. I hope not because the truth is is that we have to be together on this. We all have to be together on this issue. And let me just say finally about this issue, Kardec. We were all together on what happened to George Floyd. There was no yeah. way we were ever against the situation that happened to him and how he died. He shouldn't have died at all. Yet then two, three days later, everything broke out and everything went to hell. So all I'm saying is if we found common ground with the George Floyd situation, I'm, ass- I'm assuming we could come to common ground on everything else. Yeah, I think the uh, the thing that uh, really exacerbated this, okay, and uh, I know it was, right now it's all about race and, 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 and police violence and police brutality, the trigger on this was COVID, okay? Because I think what ended up happening with COVID is that we ended up getting into, the, into our camps on COVID. There was half the country who wanted everything reopened, didn't want to wear masks, got angry, about the shutdown. There was another half of the country that wanted the country shut down uh, uh, for, for a long time, and then when we reopened, everybody wearing masks, et cetera. Um, I, if you follow me on Twitter, you know which side I'm on of that debate. But I think that was the trigger on everything because we got so polarized by the virus that then that just spread to everything else. So I actually think uh, while, every, while the news media is saying George Floyd's killing was the uh, trigger on everything, I actually think it was coronavirus. I think if you if you um, if you have the George Floyd killing in February before COVID here, I think it takes a different course, and it, it may have petered out. So I, I really think this goes back to COVID and um, uh, the entire kind of disorientation of what's happened in sports uh, goes back to COVID. So you know we'll see how this plays right. out. MLS is playing, USL is playing, and, and last thing I'll say before I uh, hang up is uh, uh, NWSL comes back. Um, shortly, and I'm good. I'm interested to see how fans receive that because they've been very openly political. Many of the women's soccer players. So, um, will there be a backlash against them, or will they be embraced? That will tell us a lot about how this thing is going to play out. Absolutely, Clark. Thank you again for joining me tonight, and I'll talk to you next time. Take care, my friend. Great. Thank you, Daniel.
Thank you. Carter Krishnar from World Soccer Talk. As we talk about the situations, of course, MLS saying uh, we're going to postpone matches along with the players because of the uh, situation that's been going around our nation. But right now, ladies and gentlemen, these are the people that you want to talk about. These are the people you want to really, really know about the history of a certain club uh, that has laid down roots. They're still there till this day. We're talking about, of course, in Fall River, Massachusetts, the history of the marksmen. And I'm very happy to have these men on One Returns. One is a brand new guest. First things first, U.S. soccer historian and filmmaker Tom McCabe joins me. And joining in for the first time ever, Mr. Derek Consalves. He is a historian on the Fall River Marksman. Uh, he invited Tom McCabe to come up, and he gave him a tour of the areas of the most affluent parts of the town to where they played, everything about the history who owned what and where, and it's just wonderful to have these men on. Gentlemen, welcome. Tom, we'll go with you first. When you decided to make the trip to Fall River, what were you expecting from not just from Derek, but from feeling the moments of history flooding into your brain? Uh, Thanks for having me again, Daniel. Uh, Welcome, Derek, and for having me on uh, Saturday for your tour. So, I knew Fall River, Massachusetts through the newspapers. And when I say newspapers, going back to the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s. So I really wanted to get up there. I'd only passed it several times in my life on on 95. And and I wanted, you know, what what I'll call a scratch and sniff tour, you know, get on the ground, see what's going on. Uh, So I show up uh, at JFK Park, which was previously called South Park or The Park. It's been there, you know, since early 1800s. And it's where games were played uh, by 11 v. 11 soccer teams in the 1880s. So I show up and there's Derek and, uh, you know, we recognize and not, you know, nod to each other. He's got his Fall River Marksman t-shirt on. So, I, of course, I had to represent and I pull up, uh, you know, my you know shirt, and it says New Jersey, the greatest country in the world. So there was this brief, you know, standoff, like who's the better soccer town, right? Is it Kearney, <laughs> Harrison, Newark, or is it uh, Fall River? And, you know, what I'll say by the end of the day, I, I, I knew that, you know, Fall River uh, is a wonderful soccer town with a deep and rich uh, soccer history and heritage and, and, and the whole, you know, four or five hours that Derek and I spent together just confirmed that. That's absolutely wonderful. And of course, Derek Gonzalez is with us as well. Derek, um, you know, you are a native of Fall River, obviously, and uh, you've learned a lot about this club back in the day that began in 1922, sadly ending in 1931. But I have to ask you, um, you know, what was it about this club that made that town so big, so popular, that, you know, outside of Boston, obviously? Because everyone, you know, when you go to Massachusetts, everyone wants to go to Boston. What was it about Fall River that was so wonderful to be a part of that town, you know, and, of course, a heavy, rich tradition of soccer as well? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Daniel, and uh for Tom, anytime you want to come back up my way, well, we can do that again. Um, well, what set Fall River apart from Boston? I would definitely say there's there's definitely a handful of things. First off, I want to say the city has a ton of grit. 
Uh, it's a hardworking city. Um, immigrants working hard, locals working hard uh, to put food on the table. But if you look around the city, it, the landscape, it's, it's a beautiful city. It's set on some sprawling hills. The, the city is named after the Quikishan River, uh, which cut the, river, uh, the city in half. Uh, a water, you, you basically had a cascading waterfall, uh, if you saw it from the other side of the Taunton River. Beautiful photos of it back from 100 years ago. Uh, Quikishan uh, is actually, uh, I believe, Wampanoag. Uh, so the Wampanoag tribe had a great influence prior to the settlement of, of the Europeans. I believe it literally means falling water, so that kicks in Fall River. But just its history of the, with the textile industry, bringing in the immigrants, the grittiness of it, and the big boom, it grew so quickly, mm-hmm. so it had to challenge Boston. It had to say, hey, there's, there's another uh, person in the state that can handle its business. And I think um, when you add the silverware and, and all the cups that uh, the predecessors of the marksmen uh, brought in and then the continued tradition of winning that the marksmen uh, did in, in their uh, short existence, uh, I think solidified the city's uh, attitude and, and uh, just tradition of winning at that, in that era. Tom, I wanted to ask you this question. Well, go ahead. Yes. Let me jump. Let me jump in and add one thing there. Um, I know a lot of your listeners, or some of your listeners, probably watched the English game Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of quarantine, which was, you know, the early beginnings of the game in, uh, you know, the modern game in England, in particular Lancashire. Right. So you're talking Bolton, Preston, Manchester, Liverpool, all these soccer towns football towns that we know of from England. So, so th- these folks are the ones who are coming over to Fall River in the 1870s, 1880s. Yes. First time on the ground in Fall River, I was shocked at how many mills, over 200 at one point. There were more spindles there in, in the textile cotton industry than anywhere in the world, right? So it was bigger than Lancashire. So these soccer-loving folks come over and settle in the shadows of these mills and why I'm touring the town by myself before I met Derek, you know, I'm posting some stuff on social media and someone says, go to Hartley's original pork pies. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm following the lead. I go in there and literally I get these two pork pies. They're wonderful. But what shocked me was, um, you know, I got a history lesson from the, the family member, you know, who was, you know, still part of that original business from 1900. The machinery, the hand press that they're using is stamped Bolton, England. So there is, you know, still, you know, these pork pies, these English pies uh, being made in the traditional way, right in the shadow of the Globe Mill, one of these classic old mills. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a continuation of that English game, right? The English game in America. Let me write this down. Pork pies. Fall River. The pressing is from Bolton, England. All right, I gotta set up. I gotta set up my own tour here, and uh, I need some pork pies. All right. Okay, that's and there was a stamped in there. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there was a great newspaper um, article there with a headline: "Hills, Mills, and Pork Pies." So you know, dovetailing with what Derek just said. No, absolutely. But I want to go to you on this question, Tom, if I can ask, because 
you know, we've always talked about Bethlehem Steel in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Of course, they were in the steel industry to, you know, build uh, everything in the United States. And then whatever had to be exported was coming from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania in the steel uh, mills. What would you compare, or, or maybe I'll even ask that for Derek as well, what would you compare to that, like what the marksmen were, to what the Bethlehem Steel was? Well, Bethlehem Steel was a corporate team, right? So they were sponsored by this American behemoth, right? They put their money and their prestige uh, behind that. Fall River has 200 you know, plants and complexes and neighborhood teams, some corporate teams. So, so the scene was far bigger in, in Fall River, and you know they, you know, if they if Fall River had its best eleven, it, it, it could well, you know, match that Bethlehem team. And even when it was split up into different teams, you know, they, they were more than competitive. And Derek can speak to, you know, maybe the the head to head between you know the Marksman and Bethlehem Steel. Yeah, I'll take that one. And uh, to be honest, the early days. Were, it was a little difficult. Uh, there really wasn't a rivalry there in the first year or so. But eventually, the marksmen kept knocking Bethlehem Steel out in the semifinals of, of a few U.S. Open Cups. And uh, they handed them some tough losses throughout the ASL seasons and even snatched the ASL title um, with maybe three or four weeks left in the season. In a, um, it ended up being a draw, the game. But they, they faced off against each other. But had Bethlehem won that game, they would have then tied the marksmen on points that season and could have potentially won based on uh, future results. Um, but uh, like I said in the beginning, it was a little heavy heavy on Bethlehem's side. It was even heavy even earlier than that because if you go back to, to the Fall River Rover days, uh, they did uh, beat the Rovers more often than the Rovers beat them. But... Uh, eventually the marksman definitely gave them some some lickings and, and some disappointing losses. Again, like I, I wouldn't want to lose in the consecutive uh, U.S. Open Cup semifinals to the same team that just keeps stealing, uh, you know, your league titles at the same time. But I agree with uh, Tom as well. I feel like in the city, uh, there's just so much opportunity. It, it, there was so many mills, so many teams could have been sponsored. But I think, uh, and what I love about the city is, it was more uh, connected to your geographical location in the city. Uh, and with the marksman, uh, with Sam Mark being the owner, uh, he, he was a big sports promoter. He just went out and got the best talent. And he wanted to bring some of that recognition back, considering the failures of the four of Uniteds uh, prior to that. Um, but, yeah, I I think that's been like the, the biggest difference between uh, Bethlehem Steel and uh, the Fall River Marksman or even just Fall River in general when it comes to football. No, I, I, I can't believe that because I always hear so much about Bethlehem Steel this, Bethlehem Steel that, but to hear that Fall River was always the big rival in the Open Cup or in their or ASL League back in the day, I mean, that's just amazing to hear and, you know, very happy to hear about at least there is a form of rivalry. It's here, ladies and gentlemen, it's not always Boston versus New York, okay? Boston and Pennsylvania, they in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, they go at it just as hard against us as well. It's all right. But anyway, <laughs> no, but um, if I can just ask this, you know, four to five Open Cup championships with Fall River, I mean, you know, how important, you know, besides against Bethlehem, how important did Fall River take these Open Cup titles? I mean, I'm seeing the Dewar Cup 
uh, photo here with the team, uh, you know, with Fall River Rovers. Were that was Fall River Rovers as well uh, a form of the Marksmen? Uh, no, uh, the Fall River Rovers were their own separate uh, team. Uh, they won the 1917 uh, U.S. Open Cup, and they had some successes in the American Cup. Um, but by 1920, the Fall uh, River Rovers were struggling, um, and then Fall River United had a poor, poor uh, initial uh, season in the in the first uh, year of the ASL. Couldn't agree on playing space, on leasing the Bedford Ground uh, field, uh, fields in Fall River. So Sam Mark jumped the gun. Um, the USFA uh, president was up from New York to try and solve the situation because he wanted a team in uh, Fall River uh, for, the, for the ASL in its second season. He put his uh, name in the hat. He ended up taking over the Fall River franchise. And technically, you could say the, the Fall River Uniteds are more related to the Marksmen, um, but the Rovers are definitely their, their own separate team. They were not in any way connected. I do believe uh, – Sam Mark allowed a few of the older players with some experience to try out for the team, but as far as I understand, not uh, not many made the lineup in any ASL games. Um, right, at right. the U.S. Open Cup, they took it pretty seriously, but amazingly, what I found is they didn't enter every single year. Uh, for example, they didn't enter it in their first year of existence, but then they won it in the, the first time that they entered the tournament in 1923-24, they didn't enter it the following year, and I think the, that was the last time the Marksman, the 1924-25 season was the last time the Marksman did not enter the team into the tournament. So they took it pretty seriously after, the, after that point, and they played every single tournament, and then they would go on to win the 27 uh, edition, the, the 30, 1930 edition in 31. And if you want to get technical, you could say the 1932 New Bedford Whalers were basically the fall of marksmen. Tom, when you were at those different locations that were related to the marksmen, I mean, how blown away were you about some of the fields you're at? I know one of your videos with Derek was you parked at a, you were parked at a park, and I think I saw a goal net just down the other side. Now, is that a park that is used, you think, still for soccer, or is just there because the goal net is just there to represent a historical place in the history of the marksman, uh, Tom? I, I think the one you're referring to um, is, is the Billy Gonzalez uh, Field, right? Named after the uh-huh. Babe Ruth of American soccer, and that's very much being used. It's field turf, it has lights. Uh, it's used by youth all the way up through, you know, the uh, adult leagues. So it, it's great to see, you know, one of the American greats, you know, being recognized, even with a small sign. I would love to see a plaque with a narrative, you know, talking about how much he accomplished. I mean, D- Derek knows the number, but I think he won like nine U.S. Open Cups as a player, which is insane. He, sorry, Tom, he won eight. He won eight. Eight. <laughs> Yeah, which, which is amazing. And then, you know, Derek drove me by, you know, his, his childhood home and his neighborhood. Uh, but, uh, you know, the field you're referring to is Marksman, uh, you know, the stadium, Marks Field, you know, by, you know, the entrepreneur uh, and, and I guess team owner of the Marksman, Sam Marks. And what's interesting is to, to see it literally right in front of, you know, the, the mills, right? You know, right near 
Chauve Mill, and uh, the other one's escaping me right now, the, the name, the, but the I can Bourne. picture it with, yeah, the Bourne Mill with the, you know, the clock tower. So it's almost like, you know, the clock end at Arsenal, right, where you can see the game starting at 3 p.m. And then by 3.45, you know, it's halftime, 15-minute halftime, and then the second half goes from 4 to 4.45, right? I imagine the same type of thing happening you know, at, at this field or field like it. And it's overgrown. Um, you can see some fencing. And, and what was really cool is we were posting these, you know, videos, discussions started to happen. And, and Derek can pick it up from here. Mm-hmm. There, there was a, you know, a debate in the last couple of days is like to where the actual field was, you know, so you're trying to recreate from, you know, the historical record, from aerial photographs, from what people have said, uh, from uh, still photographs, like exactly where was, you know, the 120 by 75. Yes, that's true. It it turned into, uh, I wouldn't say he did, but it was definitely brought up questions. And yes, um, so where we actually stood uh, in the parking lot is where most of the original field actually was. Um and with the aerial photos taken in the 1930s, and, and you can compare it to the, the ones available in the 50s, um, the stadium basically went through some changes mm-hmm. in terms of size and design and, and function, obviously. Um, it even held uh, – it, it was used for baseball games, uh, obviously soccer, and it was used for midget car racing. Um, and that was probably the more popular of, of, its, of its uses after the marksman had left and even during the great reign of the Punta Delgada Club. Um, I feel like the racing was still more popular at the time, but yes, it was, it was great to kind of get into that debate. Cause you know, you, you're there, you get, you get a little lost in like, Oh, there's so much history here. And then you get, you, you look at the beauty of the Bourne mill, but yes, we actually learned that more mm-hmm. of the par- most of the parking lot was actually where most of the playing field was. And I think that's pretty significant um, in, in learning these. It's not just the actual 12 acre lot that's there. It's, it's specifically figuring out where this uh, would have laid out. And, and if I Derek, I have to ask thing, you. you know, well, go ahead, Tom. Yes. Yeah, it, so that was one of my favorite spots, right? Because that is probably the most well-known spot uh, in American soccer history for Fall River, right? That that stadium. Uh, it was great to see that landscape. But my, I think that, you know an underrated, but perhaps my favorite part of of Derek's tour is I showed him an article from 1888 or 89, and Fall River had won that American Cup which was the predecessor to the U.S. Open Cup, right? It starts in 1885 and goes to about 1924. And this is the oldest cup in, in American soccer history. And they win it for the first time. It did won by a, a, a Carney team three times in a row, and then Fall River finally wins it. And in the Fall River Daily Herald, there is, you know, a multi-column article talking mm-hmm. about the victory, talking about the team returning from uh, the Newark area, and they get off the ferry, and now it's a turn-by-turn parade uh, off of Ferry Street. There's a band. Uh, mm-hmm. The players get in horse-drawn carriages. There's banners across the street, fireworks, and then a banquet at the end. It was like a two-mile trek through the streets of Fall River to Flint Village, where a lot of the players were uh, from. And uh, it, it was a big civic occasion. And this is soccer in Fall River in 1888. Wonderful to recreate that. So in Derek's car, we're going turn by turn by turn following the route of that, you know, late 19th century parade for winning the American Cup. 
That's amazing, Derek. I want to ask you. I want to ask you this, Derek. Um, and if I, I, I heard this from the videos through uh, Tom. Maybe I read this as well, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is this true that Manchester United played against Fall River? Uh, yes, it wasn't. It wasn't the Fall River boxman, or it wasn't the Fall River of the time. It was actually a group of Fall River Soccer Club players. Um, and a mix of other ASL All-Stars played at Manchester United where um, it was in a stadium called Big Berry Stadium where that field dedicated to Billy Gonzalez is today. Um, Manchester United came, played, uh, like I said, a mix of an – it was an ASL All-Star game, but it had, it had a tremendous number of Fall River players on the team from the Fall River Soccer Club of the time. That was their name. And uh, I do believe Manchester United won 11-1. to uh, and prior, prior to Manchester United, a Belfast Celtic, which was a huge up-and-coming uh, club in in the UK at the time, I've had several people reach out to me to see if I can help them finding articles, and I have. Um, they came over and played in that same exact field, and the ASL mm-hmm. same setup. It was an ASL All-Star team, but most of them were Fall River mm-hmm. uh, soccer club players. Uh, the US, I believe that the score was a 2-1 win for the ASL team. That's amazing. You know, let me let me ask you this, though, Derek, if you don't mind me asking. You know, would it – because I, I know there's an uh, updated version of the Fall River Marksman. I mean, obviously it's not under Sam Marks, you know, name, or I, maybe it's not under the, under the family, but that's, of course, my assumption. Uh, do you think if they ever were a bit, shall we say, uh, brave – contact Manchester United to maybe, you know, come over for a summer uh, match? Obviously not now because of the coronavirus situation with the pandemic, but, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, do you think that maybe give Ole Gunnar Skolshar a game in the summertime to come over, maybe like in an an anniversary type of situation? Oh, boy, that's a a very loaded question. Well, let's start off with this. (laughs) I, I, I... I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now had the current team and, and Andre, the president, um, put out uh, all the information that he's been doing for the revival of the club. Um, mm-hmm. You can call it a Phoenix club. You can call it a revival club. And I told Tom, you know, we're not here to steal any glory of the original marksman. We're just here to put it, bring it back into the light. We want people to remember the six ASL titles, the four U.S. Open Cups, uh, the one Lewis Cup. You know, and the great number of uh, international exhibitions played mm-hmm. in Mark Stadium and and abroad. So, I guess the second part is I don't know if we're ready for Manchester United right now. Um, so, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. But you know, something that you know the president okay. Andre would would like to do is recreate um, some sort of a of a tour of Europe or or inviting. Some mm-hmm. some local bigger clubs that may have had some significance back uh, in the 1920s and 30s playing against the marksmen. Um, there's still a lot of amateur clubs that would have played against the marksmen in the U.S. Open Cup uh, and other cups mm-hmm. uh, that still function as amateur sides here in Massachusetts. Um, but uh, I don't I don't want to blow up the team spot, but we've been invited to a overseas tournament in in England with the um, Corinthian Casuals, uh, another team from uh-huh. Hungary, and possibly Linfield, based on their schedule. Because uh, if if the tournament runs at its at the time it is, they possibly could be in Champions League qualifying. And then 
might be a few other teams invited to the to the tournament, but we we feel like that would be a nice honoring of the tour that the Marksman did in Europe back in uh, 1930. Wow. Tom, I got to tell you, um, you know, you must have been drooling every location you went to uh, in Fall River associated with the Marksman. You, you must have been like, you know, so much information flowing through your brain and Derek right next to you, driving you, walking with you all over these places. I mean, it had to be uh, an amazing wealth of knowledge that you received. Will you be creating another YouTube movie? Yes. Well, yes, it was, <laughs> yes, it was, yes, it was wonderful to learn from Derek. I remember after we, you know, threw down, you know, Fall River Centers in New Jersey. No, 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 New Jersey Centers first. I get in the car, and, and I, I look at it, and I go, I'm here to learn. Tell me whatever you want to tell me. And it, it, it was wonderful. It was a give and take, but really it was a great example of, of someone who didn't really know Paul Ritter, spending time with someone who grew up there, who knows the neighborhoods, who knows the history, who knows the soccer history, and, and it was just a wonderful day. I, I mean, I was driving you know, back down to New Jersey and was just kind of shaking my head and, and going back. It was great. So, uh, you know, I thank him for his hospitality, and I'll return that favor when he mm-hmm. comes down to New Jersey and gives him a tour of Newark and Kearney and Harrison. As for the second thing, yes, we are in the, we, uh, me and a handful of others, are, are working on a second documentary project. That is amazing. Um, the, Derek, if I I'll can leave, ask. I'll leave the oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. no absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to announce what it is, yeah. No, 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 no. Leave us in suspense. It's okay. We don't mind. We want to know what's going well, on uh, when it comes out uh, at a later date. Right. I want to come back on your uh, podcast again, so I got to get <laughs> Absolutely. Well, both of you will be back on. I mean, I'm assuming Derek will be with you for, you know, historical knowledge once again and uh, pointing his finger, whether it's in the left, the middle, or the right. We'll find out. But, um, <laughs> You know, um, just to ask you this, there are two things real quick. Um, why is the shield or the crest of the marksman, if I can just ask you this? It says, well, I'm on Wikipedia. If this is incorrect, you can also clarify or, or clear it up. It's marksman on the top. It's uh, a black shield with red around on the outside, and on the inside is a white kind of shieldish thing. It's got two guns. Crossing. There's a football below it. F in the above the gun uh, where you shoot the bullets. R to the left. M for the right for Fall River Marksman. Is that the accurate logo? And if if it is, why is it like that? Um, I'm gonna go ahead and say that it is not the accurate logo. Um, I believe that was a production made by. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not. Don't quote me on this, but from my research, I think just some shirt company took advantage and wanted to re- and, and took advantage of the old soccer history and created that logo. As far as my research goes, the original marksman never had a crest or a badge. The most that they had to signify that they were from mm-hmm. Fall River was either Fall River spelt out or just the letters FR on their jerseys or sweaters uh, at that time. So the original team had mm. no crest or badge, I believe the one that you're speaking of was created by some company to, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to 
make it sound negative, but profit off the name. I believe mm-hmm. that shirt even ended up on um, an episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But the, <laughs> I, think, I, think that's bumpy, I think that's bumpy pitch, right? Bumpy pitch was doing a lot of, you know, you know. I actually had a F on Steel shirt. I think they were, you know, <laughs> but 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 the logo they created, and, and I want Derek to, to speak about this. They they, they uh, incorporated the city. And one of the impressive things about Fall River is how the Portuguese American community kept the game alive and are now reviving it uh, through the Marksmen. So I, I'd love mm-hmm. to, to speak about that Portuguese American community and, and what they've done for soccer, not only in Fall River, but the United States. Sure. Um, so the English from Lancaster and the Scottish immigrants who came to work at the mill mm-hmm. brought the game and brought their style. Um, but the Portuguese still weren't introduced to the game until maybe until the 1910s, 1920s. Um, and even at that point, there wasn't that great of a population of Portuguese immigrants here. But thankfully, from the few that were, we got one of the greater soccer players in U.S. history, Billy Gonzalez. Um, he was one of the first of his family born in America. He was one of the first Portuguese, I guess, stars you can say. Um, but after that, after the marksmen left, the Portuguese population continued to boom, specifically from the Azores in our area. That's an archipelago in the Atlantic Ocean. You guys have to go visit it if you haven't done so yet. It's the Hawaii of the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, continuing on in the late 30s, early 40s, Fall River FC, the successor of the marksmen, fail. They had moved to New Bedford to become the New Bedford Whalers, and the ASL2 was at that point more amateur than pro uh and the amateur side was ponta delgada soccer club ponta delgada is the capital of the azores specifically uh san miguel st michael's island and we had a giant population here in the city of ponta delgada there is what they call the city gates it's these three arches with the middle arch uh, being larger than the two on the outside and they have uh amazing detail in the peaks and in the monuments on the actual uh, arches. The city of Fall River is twin cities with Punta Delgada because of the connection we've had uh, for many, many decades, almost century, a century with the Portuguese population there. So we have a replica in our city. And mm-hmm. when, the team was, when the team was being revived, we figured let's incorporate that. On our current badge is, is a badge. And on top of the badge is the, the city gates. In the middle is the marksman's cross that you would see um, for uh, the marksman in the military. Uh, once you get that badge, it's just a, a cross. And inside the cross is an old leather um, soccer ball, an old leather ball that you would see. And then we have FRMFC for former marksman FC. And below that, it's uh, 1922, just to honor uh, the original club. But we wanted to bring in the Portuguese population because had it not been for Ponta Delgado, the soccer club, who won numerous uh, U.S. amateur cups. I think they won uh, four out of five, and it was three in a row, and then they won the U.S. Open Cup in 1947. The majority of that team represented the United States men's national team in Olympic qualifying and in uh, later World Cup qualifying games. Um, the, the One of the U.S. stars in the 1950 World Cup uh, was John Souza, he was the first American selected to um, 
the World Cup All-11 for that specific World Cup. And then the, the next American to get that title was Claudio Reyna in 2002. So that shows the significance of the Portuguese in the city and keeping uh, soccer alive as best they could. And unfortunately, even Ponta do Gaza uh, died away. And I think by the late 1950s, Mark Stadium was gone. It was turned into a uh, drive-in movie theater, and then that was destroyed and and taken away. Mm. But the significance of the Portuguese keeping keeping the game alive um, was very key after the marksman. And I think that it was the right thing to do to add a connection to them to the new crest. Okay, well, then my second question is this, and obviously it's a sad one because obviously, like we've already said, um, the club dissolved, sadly, in um, 1931. Why did it dissolve? What, what were the issues? Was it financial? Did, did something terrible happen to the, to, uh, the Marx family? I mean, we know about the whole situation with Lizzie Borden and everything. I really don't want to talk about that, but, I mean, you know, you did tell me off air – uh, when I spoke to you, that you know, it is still connected to the Marx family. But you know, what was the reasons for the Marxman dissolving in 1931? Well, from what uh, from the research I've gathered, what seems to be the case is they couldn't fill Marx Stadium with fans due to the Great Depression occurring around the world, uh, and, and specifically the the Eastern Coast. But more significantly, that I feel like some even soccer books don't mention particularly to the fall of remarksman that I mentioned to Tom and this had lasting effects. I think a lot longer than anybody would assume. So fall river with its great boom of population, you have your 200 some mills, you have your hundreds, maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many, how many triple decker family homes just to accommodate all the mill workers. There was the great fire of 1928. It was caused with one of the mills was being taken down because of financial hardships in the city. It was being taken down in February. I can't remember the exact date, but it was February of 1928. It is believed to have been started by a, a steel drum that had a fire to help the workers stay warm. It, they lost track of the, the fire, and it eventually spread. It cost $20 million of damage in 1928. I did a quick um, equivalent to today. That's like a city losing $303 million within four hours. The fire lasted for about four or five hours, and it destroyed. Thankfully, it didn't kill anybody. No one actually perished in that fire, but the the sheer damage it caused to the city was, was, was too much. And in my opinion, specifically for Fall River, I think that's what sunk the marksman. You lost numerous mills. Hundreds, if not thousands, of families were were homeless. Uh, and again, you also have the the depression kicking in, and the city itself was on a downward spiral. Within the next ten to fifteen years, most of the mills had either shut down and moved, or were lost in in future fires. So I think specifically for the marksman, it was a combination of the depression and that fire. I believe if one um, didn't occur. I think the marksman probably would have would have survived. I mean, Sam Mark even had home games. They were called home games at the polo grounds because he was able to draw ten, at least 10,000 people to the polo grounds to watch the marksman in New York. 
but he couldn't get that in Fall River. And I think it's basically for the financial reasons um, from the hardships and the economic issues that were going on at the time. Yeah, that's that's tough to swallow, and it's really sad to hear. Uh, Tom, finally from you, um, you know, after everything you've been through with Derek and after, you know, pork pies, uh, all these homes associated with the team, the, the two fields that uh, that this team played on, we've already talked about, we know you're going to make a movie out of it, but still, though, you know, how much of, you know, uh, gratification you got to know that you got the real story from a man that has not only done his homework, not only has been able to give you a fantastic tour, but to give you great ideas about what you're going to do. And you're probably going to use them again for that anyway, for that movie idea. I mean, how do you feel after everything that you've been through with him? I mean, it was definitely on my, you know, Absolutely fantastic. And Derek, let me ask you this, and this is my final question to you. Obviously, the Fall River Marksmen are back. It's a, uh, it's not as we've you already talked about. You know, it's oh, it's run by somebody else. You just want to honor the history and everything. Um, Bethlehem Steel did come back for a short period of time as an affiliate of the Philadelphia Union and MLS. They were in USL Championship League. Is there bigger plans? for Fall River Marksmen of this current um, version of it, will there be a stadium being created instead of, you know, borrowing a school, a high school field or a, or a college field? Uh, will there be plans if they do decide to be really um, initiative or at least, you know, have an idea of maybe they want to go a step higher to the professional levels? Would the Fall River Marksmen do that because we've already seen St. Louis FC saying goodbye after the end of this season. They are not coming back for another year because of whatever happened at St. Louis City, whatever that, that setup happened over there. Would Fall River Marksmen, this incarnation, would they ever dream about maybe going USL League One or USL Championship, maybe even NISA? What have you? What do you know about that? And at the same time, would it be a great idea for Fall River to get back into the swing of things at a professional level of soccer in the United States? Wow, I think this question is uh, just as tough as the last one. All right. Um, 
I'll be. <laughs> I I'll, give tough questions. I'll, you do, but I'll be honest with you. The the club wants to start legitimately from the bottom and work its way up in the uh, most sports merit uh, way. We want to earn our way up to the top. Specifically, we're starting at the uh, BSSL level. It's the Bay State Soccer League, which due to the virus, our plans have been sidetracked. So the team has actually been revived for now going on two years, but we actually haven't played a competitive league game yet because of uh, the way that the, the, the team had planned it. They planned the first year to be a revival tour, play a bunch of friendlies. There's a Fall River FC revival team in the city, uh, they're honoring the former FC that came after the marksman. We have set up something called the Tasa uh, de Fall River, which is the Cup of Fall River. It's in Portuguese. Uh, we played our first version of it last year. Fall River FC won 4-3 on aggregate. We're, we're actually going to play leg one uh, this Saturday with Fall River FC. Uh, so in terms of games and moving up, We've been delayed by the virus, but we want to move up the BSSL ladder. The BSSL has promotion. So right now we're in the BSSL 3. We want to reach the BSSL 1. We want to win multiple championships there. And then wherever it takes us, we want to go somewhere that honors and respects our uh, promotion relegation um, ideology. We are very for pro-rel in America. We want to make it we want to change the landscape to make it accessible to everybody uh in this country and not just pay to play we want to make sure kids who don't have the opportunity to play play we have plenty of ideas coming up but again it's been a little iffy due to you know everything that's currently going on with the pandemic and and the restrictions um but if 10 15 years down the line we can enter something like the USL, USL championship or, or even start our way up. And I would prefer to, to just climb the ladder. Um, whether the pyramid is open or not, I, I would rather climb it uh, through, through merit and sp- our sporting merit. Now, as for Fall River, I think they would benefit from doing something and working with the, the town of Tiverton of Rhode Island, which is where Mark Stadium actually was located. Uh, it was just over the, the, the state line. Literally, Tom can tell you, uh, the GPS said, welcome to Rhode Island in Massachusetts very quickly. <laughs> um, I think at the very least, a, a memorial something should be done. My goal is to get the recognition um, left at that, at that area, some way, somehow, either a sign, a plaque, and then another field or stadium, call it, with a, a minor capacity, something greater than your typical high school stadium, but nothing, nothing uh, giant either. Uh, in another location, maybe honoring it with a with a similar name, uh, um, just to to remember the history. I'll be honest with you, I've tracked down who I think who owns that area, and if it's, it, I'm not going to say name, but if it is that person, mm-hmm. they will be. It, it would be hard to persuade them. Um, financially because if if it's that person they're relatively wealthy in the area uh, and they're not talking to anybody about what they're going to do with that 12 acre lot that the mark stadium used to stand on all right well when you get us uh, an update let me know i'll have you back on (laughs) gentlemen thank you thank you very much i really do appreciate you both coming on tom you know i appreciate the hard work you've done uh, with your two 
movies you've done on YouTube. Derek, I appreciate all the hard work you've done for the history of the Fall River Marksman. I hope to have you both back on as soon as possible, whether it be an update on this or some other project you're going to do. Have a good night, and please be careful. Please be safe. Please remain vigilant and wear your masks, and hopefully this entire pandemic will be over with as soon as possible. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Tom McCabe, U.S. soccer historian. Uh, Derek Gonsalves, the Fall River Marksman historian, talking about the Fall River Marksman. And, of course, uh, Tom's trip to Fall, to Fall River uh, with Derek to visit all of his, uh, all those historical areas. Um, time now to talk about the local stuff, New York Red Bulls. On the road, two-match road, road trip. The terrible loss in Philadelphia, excellent draw at New England. First, we go to Philadelphia. The worst 45, the worst opening 45 minutes I've ever seen from this club. No energy, no spark. Yes, they were scored on with ease. Um, and all I can say is, is that for the Red Bulls, they fell asleep on Casper Przbilic, Bilko. Um, Shabilko, I keep forgetting how you pronounce his last name. I'm, he's Polish, I know, but so many letters that it, does, it, it doesn't sound like, you know, when you read it. But that's okay. Uh, very dangerous cross that came to him, and he got a uh, quick header, beat Ryan Mera. And even though Chris Armis made the substitutions in the second half, uh, made the proper subs, and they were able to get some chances in the second half, the truth is that it was too little too late. That one goal was just enough for Philadelphia, and all they did was just hold on to the one-goal lead, and they just all their defense just collapsed in front of Andre Blake. He made a good save or two, but still, though, collapsing defense will not get your shot lanes, your shooting lanes through. So all you can do is just say, you know what, they do what they had to do, and uh, for the Red Bulls, you got to go back to the drawing board. So we'll just quickly go to the audio right now. Here's Chris Armis first before we get to Sean Davis for that matchup. This is Chris Armis from that Tuesday night on August the 25th. All right, guys, we've got Coach Chris Armis up now. Chris, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Cool, we've got you as well. Um, just get you know a bit of an opening statement, start with your thoughts on the match before we go to questions. Yes, uh... For us, it was a big game that, that we feel disappointed right now. It wasn't good enough on the night um, because we, we talk about good enough being uh, a game, not half a game. So we think that it was completely different in the second half, and it's uh, that it's, it's uh, unacceptable the first half for us to show up. Uh, without the energy and the, and the fight that we normally have and the commitment. So, plain and simple. Half of two games, uh, first half far off, second half with, uh, like us, and that's got to be the standard. Thank you. We'll go to questions. Uh, first hand up, Anthony Merced. Hey, Chris. Um, so we're now, we've progressed through enough games now where there is um, an obvious sign that this team is having trouble scoring goals. Um, the defense is, is, is doing its job, but what 
what what can you do at this point moving forward to get this team in a place where they can start scoring goals? Well, the starting point, you know, if you if you can play like we did in the second half, then you're going to create chances. And there's a few really good chances that we can create in the second half. So before you score in goals, you got to create chances. And, and that hasn't been easy for us. So um, as a starting point, again, got to step on the field for 90 minutes. And that's the, that's the standard. And if you do that that way, now you have another five or six chances, maybe another five or six shots, and then you can see. But listen, we're trying different combinations up the field, um, some different guys, some different formations. Um, and this is what we're going to do. So you ask the question, that's what you do. You keep, you keep plugging away and then emphasizing all the things that are important in, in the final third, which is not so easy. Uh, Decision making, with the type of pass you give, can you get guys running behind, can you get guys passing behind with quality. So uh, we'll keep working at that as we take a hard look. Thanks, Anthony. Additional questions, guys, if the stands uh, ready to go. Chris, um, you know, like you said, that second half was much better, but how difficult was it? that Philadelphia just kept on collapsing at their goal to prevent your shots to get through? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, they, 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 we pushed them back in the second half. We won some balls in our pressing, we won some second balls, we were breaking lines, and we, we created chances. They defended the, the goal well. They, we had some really interesting looks goals for us to face where Matthews was running in. Mark Shikoski gets in, Danny Ruggett. Yeah, it's, it's still a hard thing to do, score goals. But in terms of uh, this was very different from the last game we played where a team just gets back, whereas Cincinnati, we, we pushed Philly back in the second half and, and they defended well to give them credit. Um, for sure. It's always hard to, to break down a good, a good defense. Time for additional questions, guys. I don't see any hands up right now. Chris, I'll throw one in. Uh, what what was the message at halftime? You talked about the difference of the, the two halves. What did you guys look at? What did you guys adjust? Well, we had to adjust the you know defensively um, what they were doing, giving diagonal balls to our left side. So we just tried to confine some of our pressing to one side of the field, and um, I think we we solved that tactically with the way we. we our formation in the second half to bear that. I think that was a non-factor anymore. Um, and then with the ball, we we re-emphasized the game plan with the ball about driving to spaces, understanding where to attack, and now stepping on the field with real belief and real commitment and you know, a conviction to drive with the ball, to drive at opponents, to take some risks, to attack. And that was the message. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, so against the ball a little bit, and then with the ball that it has to be uh, a lot more proactive and, and, and going into it. And the energy changed, and it helped. Simon Borg has the hand up for voting. Simon, Chris, uh, we've talked a lot about the Red Bulls. Did, did Philly do anything that maybe you didn't expect? Did they do anything to? 
kind of deserve the win, in your opinion, or to be better than what you guys were on the day? They were they were one play better, I, I think. You know, they, they, they create chances in transition, and I think they did that. Uh, we knew that would be a part of their game that would be dangerous. Um, but what they did better, they, I think each team created some chances, and they they took theirs, and, and we didn't. And that's where they get the credit. Um, listen, we thought it would be direct play, and it was. We thought they would overload certain areas on the right. We did. So... Like we expected, they, they bring fight, they bring energy, they they kill the game off in, a, in an intelligent way, and, and for sure they get the credit that they they crack the code, they score they score one, and we didn't. So that ends up being a difference in what separates the team from. Anthony Merced is the hand up again. We'll go to Anthony. Uh, Chris, it's a quick turnaround uh, to the next game. What are you telling the team to keep their mind focused moving forward to the next day? Yeah, the game quickly becomes before the game. We're on to New England. But the message is clear. It's unacceptable to, to play 45 minutes of soccer in this league and expect to win. So but that's, the, that's the takeaway in terms of us taking a step forward as a team. And that's not always easy to pinpoint why that happens, but it does sometimes. And that's that's the LAFC a few nights ago. It, it does happen at times. But we'll take uh, a hard look, and now it, it's it's a pick up where we left off. 45 minutes of intensity, aggressiveness, attacking, aggressive defending, guys that want the ball, guys that are driving forward, and, and uh, sticking to who we are. So that's. That's the final message to the, to the guys. We'll pick up where we left off uh, in a second. All right. Uh, that is Chris Armas talking about the match, uh, the loss to the Philadelphia Union with 1-0, and now it's time for uh, Sean Davis. To uh, well, if I can get Sean Davis over here, where's where's the thing? There it is, Sean Davis on the loss as well to the Philadelphia Union. Hey guys, first up we have Red Bull Captain Sean Davis. Uh, Sean, can you hear us? Okay. Yep. Good to go. Hey guys, uh, we'll use the raise your hand function as always. So if you have a question for Sean, just raise your hand. We'll get you unmuted and uh, get you in. Uh, don't see any hands up, so just in the interest of time, Sean, uh, can we start by getting your thoughts on the match? Yeah, you know, I think um, in the first half, we, we uh, weren't quite aggressive enough uh, with the ball going forward. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the positive coming out of the game is the second half, we really pushed the game and created some, some good looks at goal. You know, I think we have to sharpen up in, in both boxes, um, you know, keep the shutout on the road, uh, but also find the back of the end. So, you know, those are uh, some thoughts. Thanks. First question will go to Anthony Merced. Hey, Sean, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, is, is there attention now in the locker room? This team has only scored um, multiple goals once this season, and that was way back at the first week of the season. Is there a tension now that you guys really need to score and get that off your back to get going? Yeah, you know, I think it, it's important, especially on the road, to, to find goals. And, you know, that's something that 
we're looking at every single day. And, you know, it's not going to fall on one guy. It's going to uh, fall on the entire team. You know, starting from the back, can we, uh, you know, have a little bit more tempo? Can we drive a little bit more? Can we, uh, you know, open the game with a, a dribble or a pass out of the back? And then, you know, just finding better looks around the ball. And I think in the second half, we were able to create decent looks, but it's something that we have to continue to improve on. You know, especially on the road, you know, you, if you can find that first goal, it's really important. And it can help dictate the, the result. And so, it, you know, it can force the other team to push the game. And, you know, that, that works well for us. So it is something that I think as a, as a team, we have to continue to work on. We have to continue to, to look at video, uh, continue to work out in training. And, um, you know, I think that we're moving in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go. Thanks, Anthony. Next up, we have Dan Poyer, Steve. Hey, Sean, how are you? Oh, hello? Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, I hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Um, it, it looked like in the second half when you were able to get chances, uh, Philadelphia's back line were collapsing a lot. I know Andre made a couple of saves there, but still it looked like the back line was collapsing, blocking your shooting lanes. Was that the, the issue for the second half? Yeah, I think we created uh, a few good looks, like I mentioned. Uh, you know, I think their goalie came up with some big saves. Uh, there was some desperate defending on their end, but you could see that when we can uh, push, when we can win the ball, play forward quickly, uh, we can generate some real chances. So that's something that we have to continue to improve on, continue to find um, better, clearer looks on goals. You know, and like I said, we had a, a couple, uh, but we wanted we wanted to create more. So I think that's something that we all have to, um, you know, analyze. We all have to improve on and. No, it's no secret. It's something that we're going to look at on video and training, and uh, it's going to be really important in this stretch. Got time for two more. If we have them, guys, we don't see any hands up right now. Sean, what was the talk at, at halftime? Yeah, the talk at halftime was to be, um, you know, a little more aggressive with the ball, uh, you know, to try to get on the ball more, try to pull them apart, try to find spaces. And, you know, I think in the second half, we had better tempo. Uh, we were more aggressive. We were driving with the ball. We were creating uh, some turnovers and playing forward quickly, and I think that that's where our best chances came from. So uh, that was the message at halftime. I think it was the right one. I think that um, the guys took that challenge, and I think that's why we saw an improved second half. But again, um, you know, we know how difficult it is on the road. We have to score goals if we want to win these games. So uh, it's something that we need to improve on. Time for one more, guys. If we have it, it looks like Dan Penn's up again. Last one to Dan. Sean, I know it's only been two matches uh, for Jared Stroud, but can you assess his play so far, if you're able to? Yeah, he's a, he's a great player. You know, he, he brings a lot to our system. He can run. He can press. Um, he's good around the box as well. He's quick. He's shifty. So I think we're just starting to see uh, how good he is and he's growing in each team. So I think he's uh, done well. You know, it's only his second start, I believe. And so it's, it's great to have him as an option. And, you know, I think he's doing well. We're excited to have him. He's a guy that's scored a lot. And, created a lot at the USL level, guy that's trained with us for a while, so I'm really happy to see him get his chance, and I think he's doing, uh, doing well, and he's going to continue to push himself, because, you know, he has high standards, and, you know, I, I think as we continue to watch him play, we'll, we'll continue to see him grow, so. And that is Sean Davis, captain of the New York Red Bulls. They fall to the Philadelphia Union by a final of one goal to nil. Uh, but they made the trip up I-95 from Philadelphia to Foxborough, Massachusetts, to take on the New England Revolution, and they found a way 
uh, to get a positive result. I think it was a positive result for the New York Red Bulls. Um, Omir Fernandez gets a great goal. He worked well with Ben Mines to set it up. And then, of course, uh, another uh, lack of uh, sharpness in the brain. A bit of a brain fart, unfortunately, for the Red Bulls as um, they were allowing the revolution to go down the field. And, you know, Patrick Segrist, I know it's not all his fault, but once again, you must pay attention to Teal Bunbury when he is getting the ball. And when he has the ball, he does something amazing, whether it's scoring a goal or he sets up a goal and he set up to Gustavo Bo and he buried in the back of the net 1-1. Now, if you're a New England Revolution fan, you're completely disappointed because the truth is, is that you're a team that's better than the Red Bulls are. That's just the, the truth. I mean, you there was no Danny Royer out there. The Red Bulls have good young players in the starting 11. Sean Davis is not out there. Um, no Aaron Long until he came off the bench. And, you know, you're being beaten by Ryan Mera because he's making spectacular saves. One save that will not count because of the whistle being blown for a foul against the Revolution was the save made by Ryan Merritt. Once again, it will not count because the referee blew his whistle for a foul on New England inside the Red Bull area. <clears throat> Pardon me. But still, though, the way he just made that save, you can tell that Ryan Merritt is on his game. You can definitely tell that Ryan Merritt has done a job. It was unbelievable, and I apologize for the yawning. It was unbelievable to see Ryan Mera making huge saves in that game to keep the point, and they walk out of Foxborough the point. Uh, great goal and worked well. Of course, Omir Fernandez from Ben Mines, and then it was all Ryan Mera and the defense. I mean, the Rebels kept pushing. They never quit. They went well, 90 minutes plus, and they get the, the point. Now, unfortunately, Tim Parker gets sent off on a red card on a challenge where, yes, yes, his leg was high. Yes, his leg was up there high trying to play the ball. Accidentally clips Tejan Buchanan in the midsection by accident. There was no swinging leg motion. He did not violently swing his leg at Tejan Buchanan. But is that a red card? It's a card. I will not disagree about that. It's a card. But I think it's more of a yellow than it is a red. So we'll see if the Red Bulls will have enough time to maybe challenge the call to uh, lower the card from a red to a yellow. I don't think it should be rescinded, the card. Only if it's a red card, it should be gone. It should be a yellow card foul on Tim Parker, and he'll play with this coming – and hopefully, hopefully I should say, hopefully they will play this coming Wednesday night. And he'll be able to play this coming Wednesday night at home against D.C. United. We'll see what happens. But outside of that, I thought it was a good result for the Red Bulls. They probably could have won it one goal to nil, maybe two goals to nil. They would have been a little bit more clinical. But still, though, a point on the road is nothing to sneeze at, and they did a great job. So there's still be Chris Armas uh, from this past Saturday night, which was seen live on Fox Sports 1 nationwide. Well, yeah, in a really difficult building to play in against a good team that put out their, their best team, we uh, were expecting and demanding a few things tonight. And that, uh, you know, uh, one, to have a team that was ready from the start, a team that was ready to play 90 minutes, 
a team that was going to be on the front foot and aggressive. And, uh, yeah, no one hiding out there, and, and, and we saw that. Knowing that we were going to put a young team out there, if you just went around the field with Omir Fernandez, Ben Mines, uh, Matias gets a bunch of minutes, um, Patrick Segrist, uh, Manny Egbo getting his first start. If you went around the field a bit, um, you'd understand how proud we are of that effort to, to get a hard-fought point uh, against a good team that, um, you know, in their building. So um, we had to dodge a few bullets at the end of the game and then... You know, was, uh, they're putting some pressure on, especially when we get the red card. But, uh, yeah, our guys dug deep. So um, there's always going to be work to do for us to understand uh, the demands of, of these types of games and then uh, teams that challenge our style of play with direct play and big switches, and, and we're going to learn from that. So I, I am proud of the effort uh, that I saw tonight, and uh, we will keep building. Thanks, Chris. First hand up was Andrew Rosano. We'll go there. Hey, Chris. Can you just talk a little bit more about Ben Mines and Omir Fernandez? I saw they had a really great, both of them had really great matches. Obviously, Omir with the goal and, and Ben with uh, his first assist. Well, both of those players continue to grow, and they've grown uh, in the philosophy. They've grown as, as young men who physically can, can uh, hold up in games like that against an athletic team. But listen, the, as, as much as we knew that New England would be good in transition, uh, we thought we could catch them in transition with some speedy guys on the field. Um, and you can see that Ben Mines challenged them a, a few times, um, and, and so did Omir, and he, he gets rewarded with a great goal. So um, you know, those guys have earned those minutes. And we didn't have to, you know, it's not we didn't have options. Those guys earned those minutes. And uh, I thought they had some really good moments tonight. And even seeing Omir Fernandez uh, dig deep and, and go the whole the whole distance there, um, it's good for him because this is how players grow. And I trust the young players. I trust the young team. And uh, those two, especially on the night, uh, yeah, they showed up. Thanks, Andrew. Next Hand up is Dan Feuerstein. Chris, how happy are you with this performance? Uh, I know you're very upset with the opening uh, 45 at Philadelphia. To make those changes, to see the energy going on from start to finish, how are you feeling right now? Yeah, well, it's what I told the players um, before the game. It's, it's what I told them after the game, you know, what I expected tonight was the New York Red Bulls, you know, the, a team that um, has total belief in, in, in not coming here just to battle and hang on, but to go after the game. So for that, um, I told them before the game, you know, we want to get the result to get three points for sure. Above all, we step on the field with a total belief and commitment to uh, going after the game and sticking to who we are. And for that, I'm pleased. I'm pleased, and, and again, to we put out a really young team tonight, guys. Again, in terms, some of it is age-based, and some of it's MLS experience-based. And to play against their their best team, and to I don't think, yeah, at the end we were we were hanging on, but we went after the game. And if we're a little bit sharper on the night, um, 
both with and against the ball, I think there's more out there for us. We had a lot of unforced turnovers, and this is a stressful thing for a team, meaning it's just you start taking pressure. We'll improve, um, we'll build on it, there's some positives, and there's work to do for sure. Go back to Andrew with the hand up again. Uh, Chris, not sure if you've been able to see it uh, again, but what did you think of the red card to Tim Parker? I didn't get a good. I didn't see a replay. It seems like his leg comes up in a, yeah, probably a unusual position. And um, yeah, uh, I'm 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 assuming that the you know with VAR and that they got that right, but. Um, it didn't look malicious on Tim's part. I think he's going for the ball, and it looks a little bit late. But yeah, at times, run the risk when you come up like that. But uh, it seemed a little harsh at the moment. But I'm uh, I'm assuming they got that call right. Go back to Dan. He's got the hand up. Just to uh, add to uh, Andrew, if just in case you do take a look at it, uh, and if you feel it, it was, like you said, it wasn't didn't look malicious, would you uh, contact the disciplinary committee to uh, maybe reduce it to a yellow or to at least uh, rescind it? If you okay. felt that you had That's the process, then, um, that we will, I know, uh, we will look at that closely and quickly, right? And then we act. Um, again, I'm assuming that it's, there'll be nothing there, but that's that's the process. You know, we wouldn't we would never take a step forwards with that. Um, otherwise, it's a, a frivolous appeal. But if uh, it doesn't seem to be right, if the legs up, there's probably some contact, and we move on. Um, but yeah, again, that's the process. We'll, we'll do just what you said. Don't see any hands up right now, Chris. I'll ask one, and that's uh, what you see from Manny Egbo in his first uh, start for the team. I saw a player that um, has been hungry in training and, and really pushing hard and, and above all, he's earned respect of his teammates and that's always what we say around here, uh, above all, and more than your coaches and he's done that, he's earned trust from, from everyone and he went out there and, and from the start, he committed to what we were asking of him. He was a, a defending forward, he was aggressively defending, he was shifting, he was and, and that's putting himself out there because that's not that's different from the style of play that he knew before he got here and he has really committed himself fully and to see him you know dig deep into that second half and, and uh, he I thought he brought some you know some intelligence to, to, the, to the team some experience a little savviness and, and uh, um, that gives momentum and confidence to a group so I thought he added something really interesting he's very proud in one v one duels, and uh, you can see that he's not—he's not easy to get by. And uh, you know, I, I told him when he came off uh, with a big hug that I was really proud of him the way he showed up on the night. We'll go to Pardeep Katri has got the hand up. Hi, Chris. Um, could you speak? How did you feel about uh, Kaku's performance today, especially playing with some younger players? Again, you know, Kaku is, is a player that he's always looking forward. He's, he's the, he brings so much of the imagination, creativity, and, and ideas in the final third. And 
And uh, yeah, I thought he, he created a lot of you know little chances in that part of the field. And uh, yeah, he's he's always looking for, he's always playing to win, and he brings a, a, a passion. Um, yeah, I think um, where you can see that he, he he's finding the game. He's a guy that we can always give the ball to. I think we can use him even more. But um, yeah, I thought he put in a big effort. I thought he defensively he committed to what we were doing. I thought he understood the the pressing tactics and, and those demands. So on the night, you know, it's it's our attackers. We're going to keep pushing them to to uh, you know in the final third. You know, can we can we get can we get more plays right? Can we get uh, a few more of these transition moments right? Um, so it's it's not one goal in the night, maybe, uh, or, or ten shots, whatever it is, but it, it's even more. And he's the guy we rely on for that. So we're going to keep putting the the ball in his hands, if you will. And, uh, yeah, he, he uh, had a big effort tonight. Thanks. Sure. Time for two more. We'll go to Franco Pineda, who's got the hand up for the first time, so we'll make sure he gets the question in before circling back. Thanks, Gordon. Hey, Chris. What's up, Franklin? Uh, just kind of wanted to, to piggyback off of off of uh, Party's question there. Um, I know you said you're proud of the performance tonight, but uh, through eight games this year, you guys have seven goals. Um, what do you guys need to do to, to get more goals on a more consistent basis? And why why haven't you gotten uh, more goals to, to this point in the season? Yeah, look, we. Um we work hard at that all the time, you know, and, and, and oftentimes our philosophy is the playmaker. Um, meaning our our defensive work, our, our pressing, we're still, I think, number one in the league and winning balls in, in, in the attacking third. It's really what you do next in those moments. So if we just took tonight as an example, we created, I think, 10 to 15 in my mind, big moments. Two v ones on the flanks, uh, in and around the box, having the ball at our feet. Do you stay on the ball? Do you pass the ball? How how do you pass the ball? Where do you pass the ball? The timing of things. We can see that the best teams in the world understand that at, at, at a high level, and that's not so easy for us all the time. You know, it's um, you know we are a young team. Up the field, if you just looked around again, Ben Mines. Omir Fernandez, uh, Tom Barlow, Mati, Kaku. It's a very young team. And uh, it's not so easy all the time. That's the simple answer, guys. And, and then um, what do we do? We train. We try to educate. We try to get... Uh, we, we, we have attacking principles that guide the behavior of, of the players. We have transition principles to give them little tools that we're in the, when they're in these moments. Uh, staying on the ball, attacking centrally, looking, speaking the 2v1. You know, sometimes it's precision over rapidness. This is how we talk about these situations, but ultimately the players have to make those decisions in those moments. I think um, they, they put themselves in these spots tonight, and, and they're trying, and, and, and then we had the game 1-0. Uh, so question last game is we couldn't score. Tonight we score. And I think defensively we were among the... the I don't know. We, we defend pretty well, um, and that helps us create chances. So, Franco, we're trying uh, all the time to, to try to figure out the final third, but it's just not so easy. But um, the players, it's not for lack of effort. 
again, that is Chris Armis talking about uh, the vic- the uh, excuse me <clears throat> the draw over uh, New England Revolution. The goal scorer right now, Omir Fernandez. Hey, Omir, how are you? What's up, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing, doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, you know, it's been a pretty good start to your career. You scored four goals in all competitions. Of course, three last year with the. CONCACAF Champions League ball. Talk about uh, how Ben Mines found you and how you're able to put that ball in so easily. No, I think uh, we practiced that a lot this week. Um, you know, Chris told us what the lineup was going to look like, and, you know, uh, uh, we wanted to have a lot of confidence in practice, and I feel like we've done that in practice. We found each other in practice, and I guess it just happened in the game, and, um, I don't know, we just wanted to go in with confidence, and I knew I was going to get one, and I just had to put it in the back of the net, and, you know, luckily I was able to do that tonight. Next question will go to Andrew Vizano. Hey, over here. Um, bit of a different uh, lineup from, from you guys tonight. Um, you know, did that play into sort of how you were coming out the game knowing that it was a, a little bit of a different look for you guys? No, we knew that uh, we had a strong lineup. We have a strong team, strong depth, and, you know, we knew we were a young team, but we had a lot of hunger, a lot of passion, and a lot of confidence, honestly, from, you know, our older guys and, you know, our veterans, and, you know, they, they trusted us and they knew we could get a result here. Uh, we wanted three points, but we thought we just wanted to give it all, honestly. It didn't change our mindset. We just wanted to go out and, you know, play our style and win. Don't see any hands up right now. So I'll one in over here. Can you talk about the specific goal play? I think it started with the throw-in. What did you see on the play? Uh, their goal? No, I'm sorry, your your goal. No, I just uh, I just wanted to find the ball, honestly. Um I feel like I'm a player that's good in tight spaces, and when I got the ball, you know, I wanted to shoot initially, but I saw that Ben Mines was open, and, you know, without me telling him anything, that movement, just that, you know, connection we kind of have with each other, I felt like it just happened too quick, honestly. It was just, uh, it was too quick for me to even tell you what happened. I just remember finding myself in the spot to shoot, and when the ball left my foot, I knew it was a goal. I didn't even have to look. Go to Franco Pisa, make sure as many different people get a question in as possible. Thanks, Gordon. Oh, we're just going off of that. Uh, how much does that how much confidence does that does that goal give you and how much do you think it'll help as you continue to fight for, for more starts and more minutes uh, in this group? No, I think it gives me a lot of confidence. Um, you know, to score in big games when uh, when the team needs it. Um, you know, we wanted to come out and, you know, just gain more confidence for the team. And, you know, to show that we can score goals, you know, and that we have that creativity up top, you know, I feel like it gives me confidence, but everybody in the locker room confidence to, you know, keep pushing and, you know, keep progressing. Dan, for your team, the hand up again. We'll go back to Dan. Omir, how tough was New England's uh, attack against you guys? Uh, obviously, Bo being out there really causes issues. Same thing with Bunbury. He always finds a way to towards you guys. How difficult was them uh, against them tonight? Uh, they're a good team. They have uh, they have a game plan, and, you know, they didn't shy from it. Um, you know, with these long balls trying to find their wing play and, you know, find Bo in the midfield to try to create for them. But, 
Um, I think we made some adjustments in between the first half. And, you know, when we went into the locker room, we tried to adjust some things. And I feel like we were hard to break down. And, you know, for 90 minutes, we were a good defensive team to break down. And that was Omir Fernandez on his goal. And now we go to Ryan Mera uh, with a very big game from him. Ryan, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well, very well. It's been three matches so far. You've only given up two goals in three matches. Just describe your play and how you're feeling right now since you're coming back from that injury. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a very, very minor injury. Um, so I've been good from that since when, when we got shut down and whenever, March 15th or so. Um, but I feel good, man. I feel like I'm seeing the game good. I'm, uh, I feel sharp, um, you know, and, and I think it, it's, it's been a big help that the defense has been so solid. Also, you know we've uh, we've you know the last couple of games we we played against some some tough attacking players and, and we've really stood up and not given up too many chances. So uh, you know there's always things we can clean up, but I think uh, uh, I think we're happy tonight with the one-one result. And then I uh, got Franco Penizo's hand up. Thanks again, Gordon. Hey, Ryan. What's up, man? How are you? Good, brother. Uh, I think we got to get you one of those lights that, that Dan's always walking around with so that you can, uh, you can see yourself a little oh, bit better there. <laughs> awesome, um, yeah, you, guys, you spoke about the defensive performances you guys have had as of late, um, but how important is it for you guys to get a little more out of the attack, especially in terms of goals, so that those defensive performances can stand for, for more than just a point uh, in situations like tonight where they stand for three points and can help you guys really rack up uh, and, and help climb up the standings? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those things where we have a lot of half chances and we got to start turning those into real chances and, and real uh, dangerous moments where we can get some goals. Cause, yeah, it is hard. It, it's definitely hard knowing that, uh, you know, we can't really give up too much at the back. But but as a defense, we're up for the challenge. Um you know, so many times over the years, the offense has bailed the defense out. So, you know, right now maybe they're going through a little a little rough patch. So it's not it's the defense is time to to stand up and and help us stay in games. And, and, and with that said, I think we looked better tonight than we did against Philly attacking wise. You know, O'Neill, Ben Mines came in. Uh, Barlow was, you know, running his legs off, and, and Kaku is always great. So. Um, you know, I think tonight we took a step in the right direction. Obviously, we would like to score uh, the winning goal at the end. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 1-1 up here, a tough place to play on the turf. Uh, I think we'll take it. We'll go back to Dan for another question. Get it at Amazon, Franco. Anyway, <laughs> I'll give Gordon the, the stuff for you, right, if you want one. Um Talk about that back line. I mean, obviously you got Tim and Amro as your center backs. You had Segrist on the left. You had Egbo on the right. How did you feel comfortable playing against them? And if I don't mind asking, I know they called the foul, but still, though, that was an amazing save you made in the second half. I know it didn't count, but still, though, you made an amazing save on that one. I know you can't count on the referee's whistle to bail you out all the time, but still, that was a great save. Uh, thank you. You know, with the way VAR is these days, you really 
even when the whistle does blow, you just got to sign. Uh, it used to be play to the whistle. Now you got to play till after the whistle, I think, just in case they were calling anything back. So, um, no, but defensively, I think, you know, I'm very comfortable with whoever's in front of me. We have a good unit, um, both with, you know, our regular first-team guys and the, and the backups. And, listen, tonight was a big opportunity for guys like Amro and Manny and, and Patrick and, and even guys up the field, like I said, Ben and O'Neill. And, you know, I think everyone stood up to the test. These guys have been working so hard in training. And, um, you know, I've been there. I've been that guy on the outside. So I have a lot of sympathy for them. And it's great to see when they get their opportunities that they stand up and, and contribute. Um, and I think it's look, going forward, we're going to have a game every three, four, five days until November. So it's huge to have that depth. Um, and I think it's definitely something to build on. Definitely one that, more to make sure Ryan and get on the bus and head back to the airport with the rest of the group will go to Andrew Gazzano. All right. Uh, you know, for, for you, it might not be too much of a turn, but for, for the whole team, what is this sort of quick uh, cadence of games like for you guys? How do you sort of not necessarily forget, but quickly move on and start focus on, on the next team, uh, you know, D.C. on Wednesday. I mean, I think we, we love it, you know. I think, you know, for us as players, we just want to play the game. Sometimes training can be, uh, don't tell Chris I said this, training can be a little monotonous over the course of the season. But, uh, you know, we love to play games. So the fact that we have them coming quick every couple of days is, is great because, if you win and you got one four days from now, you're flying high into that next game trying to build on that. And if you lose like we did against Philly, you know you have a game three, four days later where you could put put things right and get that bad taste out of your mouth. So, um, you know, I think especially, like I said before, a team like us, we're, we pride ourselves on our depth. You know, from the first guy to the last guy in the roster, we're confident anyone can step in and, and do a job. So... I think, uh, yeah, with all these games coming coming real quick, I think it can set up really well for us. And that's Ryan Mera, goalkeeper for the New York Red Bulls. And uh, this coming Wednesday night, the New York Red Bulls will take on uh, D.C. United at Red Bull Arena at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Oh, watch it at MSG Network. And don't forget, of course, Sunday night against Philadelphia Union at Red Bull Arena also on MSG Network at 7 o'clock. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you for listening to me tonight. I want to thank Carter Krishnire, Tom McCabe, and Derek Gonsalves for being on the show tonight. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you for listening to me tonight. As always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Have a good night, everybody. Take care. So long, and bye-bye for now.